Welcome to the Tainted Dragon Inn. I'm your host, Paul A. Stefano. This episode will be Around the Table, where we'll talk a bit about varying aspects of gaming and game design. Today will be our introductory episode. Audio effects provided by Sirenscape and Black Stiletto. You can find us online at www.taintedragonin.com, on Instagram and on Facebook. At the table today, here's my close friend and producer, Mark Nicoletta. Hello, everyone. So, I'll be running a lot of the questions in the discussion of today's episode, just to get a little bit more out of Paul than what he would say normally on his own. A little bit more of a discussion. Since this is an introduction, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you're a blacksmith, a game designer, a game collector, a DM, and an up-and-coming author. You're a blacksmith? I do a lot of different things. Yeah, I'm a historical blacksmith specializing in blacksmithing from the late 1800s. Things like hinges and shelves and things that you just go and buy at a hardware store right now. Um, I'm not big into making weapons, although I have. uh, For my brother's pirate-themed wedding, I did make him a cutlass for his wedding present. Uh, But I'm more a hardware guy, so a lot of people ask, you know, how come you don't go on Forged and Fire and make a sword there? And that's like putting a baker into a barbecue show. Like the equipment is basically the same, but overall it's not really the same thing. I can get that. I can get that. I I do a little bit of blacksmithing myself, but I mostly stick to the blade side, though I'm nowhere good enough to go on Fortune Fire or anything like that. (laughs) Some Um, of the guys on Fortune Fire aren't good enough to go on Fortune Fire. It happens. Yeah, I've noticed. (laughs) Okay, let's uh, go on your game designer. You've been on a few different games. uh, Yeah, I've been on on a lot of different games. Um, I've worked on uh, some really large name games for Hasbro, but those are the type of things where you don't get a uh, credit in the credit line anywhere like that because it's Hasbro. Uh, I've worked for a lot of other companies like uh, WizKids and Attican and Cambridge Games Factory, things like that, working on anything from game design and development when we're still at the whiteboard stage to final balance and design changes to various characters in miniature games and things like that, and working on uh, licensed games for different uh, movie and book series and things like that, and a couple of Smaller original games, although those nearly uh, do as well as the big names like Lord of the Rings. Oh, makes sense, of course. Any of the indie stuff doesn't go as far, but it sounds awesome. You do a lot of the creative side, as we've seen with the first podcast, which was you narrating. Um, What what makes you so creative? You've done a lot of DMing, haven't you? (laughs) What makes me so creative? Um, My college degree is a bachelor's of creativity, actually. That's amazing. I mean, it's just something I've always done. I've always done things like writing. Um, and on Board Game Geek, uh, where you go to write reviews and find out what the next hot board game is to buy, I used to go and write reviews there all the time. And sometimes I would get bored with the standard format of reviews, and I'd start writing things in character. And one time, there was a big game coming out at the time, uh, Ninganost. It was a huge miniatures game that was going to break the world open, and I got a preview copy, and I did a review and a play session in it, but I did it fictionally. So I did it in the world uh, where it was the action as seen by the characters in the game, the actual miniatures, rather than a player. About a week later, I was called by the president of the company, and they said, okay, we're redesigning it and coming out with version two. Uh, Do you want to come aboard? and help us design all of the characters, help us redo the rules, and write all the fiction for this world. I said, okay. 
Uh, and it went a little bit, but unfortunately, soon after, due to a personal tragedy, that company vanished. But it got me into writing fiction for games, which then continued in doing it for other game companies because a lot of that stuff was seen at conventions and some of it was released to the public and the website had dozens of stories on it that I had written. And from there, offers started coming in for, write for this game, can you write this for that game? And sometimes it was the text on cards, flavor text and things like that. And sometimes it was, we need a fictional background for this world, can you do an entire worldscape for us? Always different, and sometimes it's licensed where you're a little restricted, and sometimes it's, we have no idea what they're doing. Um, go out there, create us a planet, and have fun with it. And it's always been fun. It's really it does sound like fun. What kind of uh, license restrictions? Probably not allowed to talk about it, but give us an overview. License restrictions are strange. Um, I think the first time I worked on a licensed game was Star Trek Fleet Captains by WizKids. And... They're very, very restrictive beyond things like how big their logo can be and things like that. But what you're allowed to do in a game. So you can't have Spock say something that you want him to say in the rule book. You can't have Spock say, oh, and that means, you know, move this meeple three slots over because Spock never said that. It has to be a pre-existing bit of text. So that means when I worked on the Lord of the Rings collectible dice game, no, it's, it, was, it wasn't collectible. The Lord of the Rings dice game for WizKids, and I wrote all of the flavor text for the cards. I wasn't allowed to write any original text. They also didn't have the rights to Tolkien's original books. They had the rights to the movies. So what I had to do was take every card in the game, lay them out on a table, and watch every one of the movies in sequence picking what quotes matched which cards perfectly because you had to be exactly what was there. You weren't allowed to write anything original. That was incredibly annoying. That was the longest weekend of my life. You should never watch those movies back to back in the extended edition. It almost <laughs> I can only imagine. Now, I've other watched them. But... I've done games where there's properties out there where there's very distinct things about them. Like what if somebody told you you can make a Star Trek game but you can't fire a phaser? it changes the flavor of what you're working on. Or here's Pirates of the Caribbean, but we're not allowed to do anything in the water. So sometimes they come up with these really strange restrictions, and it's usually because they're targeting an age group, and they want to avoid certain depictions of violence or certain things that heroic characters shouldn't be seen doing, like smoking or something like that. And sometimes the restrictions come to the point where how can you possibly make a game about gladiators if we can't have anybody hit anybody and you can't use swords? Oh it's my god! Challenging at that point. Yeah, that sounds that sounds a bit ridiculous. If you have a little bit more freedom in some of these other games, like right now you're working on Oathsworn. Oathsworn is a lot more freedom. Um, it's an original series by Shadowborn Games. The first and the flagship game is Into the Deepwood, and I was brought on as the first writer. There's now a, a pool of writers working on this thing because it's just so huge. But originally when I was brought on, there was basically a Bible of this is our ideas of the world. And at that point, it was do what you want, mess with what you want. And I was spending hours upon hours with Jamie Jolly, the uh, head designer, producer, world creator over there, tweaking bits of what this world is like. And I'd like to introduce this concept. And what about that? And he was always like, well, that's great. Let's run with that. And every now and then he's like, that doesn't fit what I originally saw in my mind. But it was kind of like if Jamie had shown me the trailer to a movie and then asked me to write the script. 
So I had general points. This is what this world is like. This is where we are. Now fill in all those details and filling all those details within that framework is an absolutely wonderful world to work in. It's a really grim, dark, horrible place where most of the world has been taken over by the deep wood, which is essentially an out of control, chaotic forest inhabited by out of control, chaotic creatures, which are a blast to design. It does sound like fun. Sounds like a fun game. We'll get to that a little bit more later in the episode. We'll go more into Sworn and the specifics of what you've been doing with it. But tell me about game collectors. You have a huge game collection, board game collection. Don't I you? have a fair game collection. Um, if the tally is right, it's somewhere in the high 700 games right now. Um, yeah, I've actually played them all at least once. I can't stand to have an unplayed game there. But let's face it, sometimes you play a game and that's enough. You're never going to play it again, so it goes away. Uh, I have sold games three times in my life. I've sold a game and I've regretted it every time. So I just don't sell them and I just keep collecting them. But I do actually play them. Um, We play games at my house um, maybe three or four nights a week. Uh, And then we'll go and play at friends' houses as well, just like any gamer would. But having a library like this, you become the game supplier for any given group. Uh, But I do know certain people out there who have larger collections of games this is a fair collection it's more than the 30 that a lot of people have it's not bad definitely more than 30 (laughs) and you have a dedicated game room for this all too yeah of course um having this many games if you hide games in a closet somewhere you don't play them as much you got to see them so it was important to me that games were put out on shelves and okay i do have games in multiple rooms just because i have so many but there came a point where we really were having difficulty climbing around the piles of games. So rather than sell more games, my wife made the obvious suggestion of let's convert the garage into a game room. So we just added an extra room to the house and it is a room specifically that has a gaming table with one of the lift off tops and you have the recessed inside where it's the casino speed cloth for passing cards to each other. And it's got cup holders and all that. And, uh, on the walls are all the miniatures to play and whatever you're going to grab. And there's a table just filled with dice and markers that are shared between different games. So if you're going to play games, yeah, you got to do it in the right place. Sounds like a fun place to play. That's even where you DM a lot of games, correct? That is where a lot of games get DM'd. It absolutely is. Um, it's actually the next room over from where I'm sitting right now. And on the wall, we have painted a quote. And the quote is... The most wasted of all days is one without laughter by E.E. Cummings. That's just painted across my wall. And you don't laugh as much as you do when you're playing D&D. No matter how serious and dire a game is, if it's done right at some point during the game, somebody can't breathe because they're laughing too hard. Well, that goes along with on the website, you created the different game classifications and your idea of can you hit somebody with a halibut? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, that goes along with any type of role-playing game. No matter how serious it's supposed to be, there's always these funny moments. And that's yeah. what makes it so entertaining. Yeah, it's got to be ups and downs. If it's all stupid and funny, then you really don't care too much. So you've got to have some serious moments and emotional moments and scary moments. It's the contrast that makes the games fun. So you create a lot of homebrew for your own D&D or mixed RPG games mm-hmm. that you play. Uh, that's the inspiration for this whole podcast and... The On the Table episode. Tell me a little bit about the first episode that we had, Barrel of Brandy. Oh, this is going into backstory that fits into the Emergent Campaign series of books. Uh, the series of books is novels. They'll be coming out starting at the end of uh, 2019. 
And the emergent campaign is based on uh, players who are playing a game. So you get deep detail into their lives and the emotional connections of the players and also the game that they play. And due to the way their DM is, he interweaves parts of their real lives into the game, little symbolic manners. And you end up with emotional confusion. Was this real life in the game and things like that? Um, it's very important to me that games become an emotional connection. Uh, but the game world that those characters play in, all we see is what their characters do. It's a much bigger world, like any game. You know, When you're playing Greyhawk, you're not seeing every spot in Greyhawk. Nobody's been to every place in the Forgotten Realms. But somebody did design it. So I have a lot of extra designed background to the game world from the Emergent Campaign. Uh, that's going to be coming out in the podcasts that are on the table. We're seeing the fictional world that the players didn't play, but that readers might say, hey, I really wonder about that character, how they meet. What about that landmark? Why is it there? How did this artifact get made and things like that? So it's basically the lore that's additional information behind the game that's being played by the player characters in the Emergent Campaign. And in these episodes, you narrate them as if you are the DM, as if you're telling a story on the table. Pretty much, sure. That's the way it should be. And I'll be giving lore and background. And when different characters come up, they have different voices and things like that. But for the podcasts, we also throw in some nice sound effects. And any good DM should have a soundboard available with them, or at least background music running at all times, just to make it more immersive. I'm very big into immersion, that the characters, when you're playing, you should feel something for your guy. He shouldn't just be a bunch of numbers and a bunch of dice. Uh, he should be a personality, which is why when you say D&D, it's kind of rough for me. It's not always D&D. It's what do you want to play? I don't care what the rules are. A good role-playing game is a DM, a story, players, and their interaction. I don't care if you're rolling a 20-sided die or a 100-sided die. I don't care what the character classes are at all. I care more about what's happening to these characters. And that's what makes for a good story. And that's how you came to the book series, correct? Absolutely, yeah. It's a lot of things inspired by things that happened during games. Uh, and uh, what if it actually didn't go that way? And what if it was actually a little more turned up to 11 and things got a little bit crazier? And, you know, what if during a game you had two people get into an argument? Well, in the book, that argument becomes a fist fight or something like that, which you could picture happening in some games, and I'm sure it does. So I've taken little bits of elements that have happened throughout some 40 years of DMing, plucked out the elements from real-life people around the table, plucked out elements from characters and games, thrown them into a shaker, reorganized everything, and poured them out into what I believe to be uh, some emotionally attached games in the Emerging Campaign series of books. And the first book, the one that's coming out soon, is The Road to Ruins. The Road to Ruins, yeah. Here's where we're introduced to Val. Um, Val is the DM of these games. He's eccentric. He's crazy. He has uh, no personal boundaries. He's uh, not very good in social situations. He's not a nerd the way like we picture like Sheldon from Big Bang Theory or anything like that. But he kind of likes playing with his friends' emotions almost on an experimental level, and he does that in the game. Um, and this is the time we are introduced to the emergent campaign and the fact that he doesn't want people to roll up characters. 
He wants characters to evolve from the actual players, uh, which sounds really great, but obviously could get dangerous if you're playing with people who have uh, emotional or mental problems. Well, understandable. If you're playing as yourself, you get a little bit mixed up with what's real and what's fake. Exactly. And you get some really weird emotional, you know, you betrayed me in the game. Do I trust you in real life? That's an interesting question. That is. So the on the table is the in-game world fully narrated from the book. Right. That's the emergent campaign. We don't talk about the fact that it's a game world. It is presented as a fictional world building exercise and stories and short stories of the characters that may show up in the emergent campaign books. It's their side stories. And in the book itself, when you read the in-game interactions, you read it as a narrative, as if it was a fantasy story. Oh, absolutely. Um, The book has a really strange writing style where when we see our characters going about their daily lives at home and at work and things like that, it's written as any other standard book. And we see things like them say, okay, I'm going to go attack that ogre or something like that. And then the book shifts. And then the next section of the book will be in italics. And rather than saying, Mark rolls a D20, he comes up with a 17, he's hit the ogre. It doesn't come like that anymore. It becomes a fantasy narrative in italics, where in the world. The knight charges forward. He's drawn his sword and he lunges down towards the ogre's neck from the rock he's been standing on. It strikes and glances off his shoulder. So it's done as a DM does it, rather than as a game does it. And it switches in between, in and out. And anybody who's played D&D knows that you're playing the game, you're in-game, you're in-character, and then somebody says, where's the soda? That type of thing happens in this book, and there's technically three different storytelling ways to come about the story. That's the narrative of the real world, the italics, which is in-game narrative of what they're playing, and let's face it, this is 2019. There's a lot of texting to each other. And Val, the game master in these games, likes secrets. And he will text little bits of information to different players while they're playing, not letting other players know what's going on. So there's also another typeface change when we see texts between various characters. And it all interweaves together. The texted secretive world, the outward appearing world of normal reality, and the italic world of this is the game where they inhabit their avatars. That's a really interesting concept. Now, I've read the book. I've been working on it with you helping the editing drafts. I just have to say, it's really compelling the way it's written. It gives you these interesting blend of, here's a character drama of the quote-unquote real-world players. Then there is this whole separate fantasy story that jumps in and out of depending on how they play the game and when they play the game. Mm-hmm. The game is separate. It, it really flows together, and you become invested in both the fantasy world and the real world, and you come to love and hate these characters. Oh, I don't I want to spoil too much, but <laughs> I, there'll be more coming up through the website and in further podcasts where we discuss more. And after the book's released, we'll go into more intimate details of what might have been hidden, what Easter eggs 
because I know you like layers, Paul. I like lots of layers. There's all sorts of strange symbolism and puzzles and little jokes that uh, nobody's going to get on their first read-through, and I hope some people get by their third read-through of these novels. And if not, yeah, eventually we'll talk about some of them with a spoiler tag. So let's go back to the website. On the website, we have some of your game reviews, which is how you became a game designer. Um, I know one that was recently posted on Instagram and Facebook was Lords of Waterdeep, and that shows you talking in character. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it was just cool. Everything yeah. becomes... What was the main quote? Everything was reduced to cubes? Yeah, yeah. It's what if the actual king looked in... In in Lords of Waterdeep, you're supposed to be playing like wizards and clerics. They're just different painted cubes. And this is what is actually the king saw these were cubes out there because that's a pretty funny way to do a review. And if you can get somebody to agree that's pretty funny, you get them to read the whole review. Uh, Of course. I think so. Uh, It's interesting. makes the game more interesting. And it shows how you connect to the games that you review. Absolutely. So some of them are still available, the games, and some of them are old games that you still have from the 80s and before that mm-hmm. are no longer in print, that are just interesting to see what some people might remember and what others might think are really cool and collectible nowadays. Yeah, I really love going back to the games that I found formative in board gaming, and they are, by today's standards, archaic. Um, gaming has gotten better. Physical production of Cards and boards have gotten better, and people have figured out what works and doesn't work rule-wise. Uh, games evolve pretty rapidly, and some of the games from the 80s are still fabulous, and some of them are unplayably bad. But no matter what, a lot of them are really interesting to look at. So now the game you're working on is Oathsworn, as we talked about a little bit earlier. Absolutely. You've come up with this cool lore. There's some images of some of the minis, and mm-hmm. what's the most interesting piece of lore that you've come up with so far? What do you find yourself the most attached to? Um, The most personal thing that made it into the game is, uh, now I came into the game way early on in development, so things were still mushy and able to be changed, and just to put myself into the game, we have this world that's been taken over by the woods. Everything out there is the woods. There's no open fields. Um, you can't make it to the mountains because the woods around it will kill you with all the creatures that are there because of this commodities change. And one of the things that increases greatly in value is iron. Um, so rather than a gold-based economy, uh, which is so everywhere fantasy, we skewed towards an iron-based economy. And then throwing my own personal experience in there, I came up with, well, most of your good tools and housewares are going to be made out of iron and so is the money. So what you get is a banking system run by a banker blacksmith. And this is where we coined the term the banksmith. And the banksmith is a guy who will literally take your money, which comes in small ingots and shards. You give it to him. He keeps some himself and he'll hand you back the required hinge you need, the new dagger you need. On the other hand, you're down and out. You bring him a kettle, he's going to turn that into the iron ingots you need to buy something else. It's a universal trade system, but it's based on iron and the banksmith. So the word banksmith, I'm really proud of, just because that's kind of strange and I've never heard anything like it before. That is interesting. It, it really explains a different world where every piece of commodity, it's almost a trade 
system, a barter system, in that you break down any tool into being money at any moment. Yeah, absolutely. So, on Board Game Geek, where the initial release was teased for Oathsworn, I saw that you started responding to some questions as Taryn, the Fablemaster. Yeah, Taryn, Fableman, yeah. Um, what happened there is... Uh, I was answering questions as a member of the game team and somebody said something. And for some reason it just struck me as I'm not going to answer this as Paul. Uh, I, I went in and I wrote something like Taryn the Fableman overheard your question. And then I started answering in character and I'm like, wow, that's pretty neat. And then the guys in the oath sworn team saw that and they're like, wow, that's pretty neat. So I started up this new thread where uh, it's completely in character. And the character is not aware that there's a game. He is a fableman, which is what we would call like a bard or a town crier or anything like that. Uh, and I'm having people who are interested in buying the Oathsworn game and want to know a little bit more about it have conversations with him in character. And uh, he's answering in character from his point of view. And I'm going to say right now, for anyone who's looking at that thread or is going to listen to the eventual audio version of it, it's only what he knows. That doesn't mean it's correct. Point of view, people. That makes it really interesting. So you're going to record once there's more of these questions and there's more of a back and forth? Yeah. Um, once we get enough, uh, what would be a normal podcast length for me, which I, I like things that are like you know 25 to 35 minutes or so, we'll start recording segments of that. And have it so rather than read the thread or track it down, because people can either put questions there on Board Game Geek. We're also accepting them at TaintedDragonIn.com, where people can send in from a form there questions for Taryn to answer. Also, yeah, that's on the Oathsworn page on the website. Right. You go to TaintedDragonIn.com, go to the Oathsworn page, which is under gaming, and go to uh, Taryn's Inn uh, or Taryn's Table. And I'm warning you now, the guy's not exactly the most polite guy in his answers. Um, so be prepared for him to maybe note that uh, you should know better when you're asking stupid questions. Uh, and it will be that we'll eventually put this out as audio so people don't have to track it down and read it all because it's a little bit spread out there. And some people like to uh, listen to stuff on their car ride to work. That's true. I always listen to different podcasts on my drive-in and uh, getting a nice little rude Fableman responding <laughs> to questions is interesting. I've, I've read them through. They're they're great. There's a lot of character to Taryn. Yeah. And I'd love to see what more questions come in. So if you're listening to this and you have questions about Oathsworn, go ahead. Go to our website. Go to Board Game Geek. Put in a question. Paul will respond as Taryn, and it might just end up on the audio version, which would That's be awesome. Exciting. Yeah, that would be pretty you, cool. You can help us create content by telling us what you want to hear about. Absolutely. Buy Taryn a drink. Yeah. And so I think we'll wrap up. If you want to know more about Oathsworn or about the Emergent Campaign and the books that Paul is writing or about what other type of stories are coming up, go to our website at www.taintedragonin.com and explore. See what's there. If there's any comments, questions, feel free to contact us and let us know what you want to hear. If there's anything that you want to hear about in a new episode, let us know.
Yeah, let us know everything you want to know. Uh, anything on the table where you want to know a little bit of background from the Emergent campaign. If you want to know something from Oathsworn, ask about that. If you want to know something about uh, how you make people get emotionally involved in your D&D games, go ahead, ask about that. All right, I think that's our episode. Thank all you right. all. I'm Mark. I'll okay. see you next time we're around the table. I'm Paul. Farewell and fair journeys.